And as you take your seats, please open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Recall that we have been making our way through Paul's first letter to this young pastor in the city of Ephesus, now modern-day Turkey. He's writing to young Timothy, and the church there in Ephesus has some particular challenges, challenges that seem to be common in churches in general, but especially common in this day and age back then when the church was so young and the scriptures were not uh, yet completed. Here we have Paul giving instructions then to Timothy, to the church there in Ephesus, but to us as well. And here in this book we see how the church is to be built. How do we go about the process of building the church of God? And I, I hope that's of interest to you, that your interest in Christianity is more than how can God build your life, but better yet, how can God build his church, which would include your life? Well, in this text... Verses 8, 9, and 10, we have some guidelines. Now, if you've been reading ahead, you know that chapter 2 after verse 10 is a rather challenging passage. It's one that has unfortunately become controversial in our day and age. It doesn't need to be, but it has become. And I'm not addressing that this morning. <laughs> That's next week. I want to spend more time concentrated on verses 11 and 12, and on through 15, actually. But this morning, just verses 8, 9, and 10, I'll read it to you. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. We'll stop there. And in those three verses, there's plenty for us to talk about. In fact, as I was preparing for this morning's message, I had to begin to cut things out because there's so much to say, and I can't say it all in a time that's allotted from Sunday to Sunday. But as a way of introduction, let me just note to you that some, well, many years ago now, I knew a couple and uh, individually, they were very uh, happy people, but together, they were not. Um, in fact, they seemed to be in perpetual conflict, always arguing, always yelling at each other, at times calling the police on each other. It was awful, in all honesty. And, and every time they had a blowout, they would skip church that Sunday. So if the blowout was on Saturday, they'd skip church on Sunday. But if the blowout was on Monday, they would skip church on Sunday. And it wasn't because they were embarrassed. Nobody knew what was going on in their home. It wasn't because of any sense of shame that anybody would think, oh, what's going on in your house? Which is such unfortunate, right? But that's the way people are. We like pointing fingers. But that wasn't the case here. Um, it wasn't because they were angry at each other. It was simply because they thought that it was not right for them to worship God with such sin-filled hearts. So I can't go to church like this. And the problem is, is that they argued quite often, which meant they didn't go to church quite often. And so my opinion to them was, well, that's why you do need to come to church, so that you will be challenged by the Word of God, so that you will hear His truth, so that you will repent 
so that the two of you will be reconciled. And instead, they chose to remain angry and quarrel and stay away from God. And that's what they chose to do. For many years they did that, and I don't know whatever came of the situation. Well, obviously we had a dilemma, not just between the two of them, but between them and myself, because we're both right. They were right, and I was right. They were right because, in reality, what we see here in the text is that you cannot properly worship God if your hands are caressing your sin. And I was right because if you are living in sin, and who of us do not sin, we need to be exposed to the truth of God so that our sin-stained hands will be pried open and we will release our sin, be forgiven, and be reconciled. And so we were both right. Now, the Bible calls on us to build his church. That is our duty. Every Christian's duty is to build his church. And he emphasizes the importance here in our text in purity, of purity, the importance of purity, and the importance of being consecrated to God if indeed we're going to build his church. What should this couple had done? What should they have done? Well, I, I believe the best thing they could have done was to come as they were, whatever condition they were in. They should have listened to the word of God. They should have repented from their sin towards each other and against God. They should have been reconciled to each other as a result of being exposed to the worship of God and then worship God properly. That's what they needed to do. Well, here the Apostle Paul continues in describing one of the chief elements of building his church, and that's prayer. And you'll recall in past sermons we were talking about what, what prayer is and how we should pray and the various kinds of prayer. And so Paul begins, and maybe you noticed there at verse 8, along the same line of prayer. Prayer is instrumental in the building up of the household of God. In other words, the church cannot be built if it's not built on prayer. It's essential. Your prayer, our prayer. And so he says here, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Are you surprised? Maybe you're surprised that it refers here just to men. He says, likewise, rather, I desire. And, and the phrase there, I desire, is not I wish or I prefer. Now, we see that in chapter 2, verse 4, where it says God desires that all people be saved. But that's not the same word in the original Greek that we see here at verse 8. Rather, here, when Paul says, I desire, he is saying, I am resolved. Paul is saying that this is a determination that will drive forward a plan. In other words, this is a directive. He's saying, this is what you've got to be doing. This is not an option. And notice two presuppositions here in this little phrase, that, every, that in every place the men should pray. It presumes that men gather. That's one. And number two, it presumes that men pray together. Right? That's a given. That men gather and that men pray together. 
So he says that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. And sometimes it's easier to understand what the Bible is saying by, but by, by first attempting to understand what the Bible is not saying. So let's begin there. What is the Bible? What is Paul not saying? And then we'll take a look at what he is saying. The Apostle Paul here is not telling Timothy that men should pray in every place. Although that would be a good idea. He's not, this is not a mandate that wherever you go you should be praying. That's not what he's saying. And neither is he saying that women cannot pray in worship. Although some people make that conclusion. He's not saying that either. And the apostle is not saying that men ought to lift up their hands when they pray. If that were the case, I would assume the majority of us here just wronged God. Because I have my back to you, but I don't believe too many of us had our hands up. Did we men? <laughs> I don't think so. The Bible here is not saying that men need to lift up their hands when they pray. Although... It was a common practice, and it is in many churches. We just happen not to be so expressive, good or bad. This was the common practice. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 22, there you have King Solomon. And King Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. In other words, he was worshiping God, and he has the congregation or, or, or all the people of Israel, a large amount of people of Israel, come with him to honor and worship God. And what does Solomon do? It says that he spread out his hands toward heaven and he prayed. In Psalm 141, David is far away from Jerusalem where the um, worship of God was held at the tabernacle. He can't be there. But this is how he prays. He says, 141.2, he says, let my prayer be counted as an incense before you. And listen to this. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. You see, lifting up your hand in prayer is an expression of a sincere desire for God. It's a stretching out for God. Uh, it's a form of submission to God. It's as if your heart is pleading for God. It's a way of saying, I am yours. It's a way of saying, I surrender to you. Stretch out your hands. Uh, we here, for the most part, are not so expressive, are we? Uh, other churches are certainly more expressive. We tend to be a subdued crowd. I think a lot of that is because I'm a rather subdued guy myself. I sometimes wonder what many of you were like in the 1960s, right? during the, the British invasion. You've all seen the video. Some of you were there. And while the Beatles are singing, she loves me, yeah, 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 I think most of us were just like this. <laughs> Whereas everyone else is screaming. <laughs> Creedence Clearwater in the 1970s singing, uh, Have You Ever Seen a Rain? And everybody with their lighters back and forth. Have you ever seen a rain? The rest of us are like, <laughs> I think that's us. Me included, by the way. Right? And I'm not equating the worship of God with a concert. What I am saying is that we're not very expressive. We're not. Uh, we, we are rather reserved. We do not 
emotionally express ourselves, and as a result, our worship is not emphatic. And I wish we were more emphatic. Within biblical boundaries, it's not anything goes. It's not a screaming and yelling falling to the ground. No, 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 no. This is not a rock concert. But I do wish we were more emphatic in our worship. What Paul writes here when he says that men should raise up holy hands, he's saying, when you do raise up your hands in prayer, which was the common practice, raise up holy hands. Make sure your hands are holy. Now, the word holy in the scriptures often means something other than the common. In other words, God is holy. When we say God is holy, we are saying that God is like no, none other. There is nothing like God. We have, I like to say at home, holy dishes. Those are the dishes that come out only when there's special company, when there's a special dinner. Otherwise, you don't see those dishes. These are, these are the expensive, make sure you don't chip them, dishes. God is like no other. He is holy. But that's not the word we see here in this text. The word for holy here means pious. It means devout. When we say God is holy, we're not saying God is pious. We're saying he is like no other. What we see here is lift up holy hands or pious, devout hands, hands that are pleasing to God. Let me paraphrase it this way. Verse 8 would read, When you lift up your hands in fervent prayer, make sure that they are devout and pious hands, hands which are pleasing to God. And then he actually gives us Two very common examples of men worshiping God without holy hands. Two problems that men face very commonly. This is the attitude that many men carry to the worship of God's house, in God's house. He says, make sure that when you are worshiping God, that your hands are not tainted by sin. What sin? Two in particular. One is anger and the other is quarreling. Two very common problems that men face, men more so than women. Anger and quarreling. When you come to worship God, and you are lost in your worship, you are praying to God, and you raise up your hand, make sure that it is not a hand that's stained with anger and stained with quarreling. Because that's not acceptable to God. Make sure that they are not wrath-filled, vengeful hands. Make sure that your attitude is not one that you're in, in consternation with other people, reasoning poorly or, or in, in a selfish way, demanding that you be right and they wrong. Instead, men should pray with a sense of consecration of my life to God. We should be praying with moral purity. I'll abbreviate it this way. We should be committed to God, and we should be clean before God. Those are the hands that God wants us to raise in prayer and worship. 
committed and clean. We ought to be men who say what is right and do what is right. Well, let me add to that. Often men may do what is right, but they don't say what is right because, you know, I'm just a silent kind. No, we should say what is right and we should do what is right. We should be men whose claims of God are reinforced by what we say and how we live. Committed and clean. Now, why does Paul pick these two elements out to speak about the attitude of men? Well, I've said it already. It's because these are common traits among men, arguing and quarreling. Anger that brings about the arguing. And by the way, I think these are two, two characteristics that have given to modern men this idea, this label of toxic masculinity. When the general public speaks about how toxic masculinity is, it's often a reference to this. Men who are angry and men who are quarreling. Now, there's more to it. Unfortunately, they keep adding to that, but it's especially those two aspects. Now, let me say this, unless you women feel really good about yourselves. The same is true for women. Leave behind your anger, leave behind your quarreling. However, this is far more common among men than it is women. If you want to build the church of Jesus Christ, anger and quarreling must cease. Now notice here, the Christians is not told to cease from being angry. We're being told here to stop having bad anger, the wrong anger. The Bible is not telling men to become passive. The Bible's not here saying, men, what you need to do is just say, hey, everything goes, you know, I'm not going to make any judgment calls, you know, that's your, that's your truth, you, you, that's the way you want to live, you know, it's okay, everything's fine by me. No, no, that's not masculinity at all. Certainly that's not honoring to God. We're not here being told to say everything's acceptable. However, there is a contrast, what we see here is between good anger and bad anger. This is good anger. Good anger is an anger that corrects whatever wrong there is with goodness. Good anger corrects the wrong with mercy. It's still anger, but it is constructive. It builds. It doesn't destroy. Bad anger addresses, now notice I'm not saying it corrects, because bad anger does not correct, but it does address. It addresses the wrong with bitterness. And it addresses the wrong with quarreling or demanding. That's bad anger. Have you ever considered that anger is actually a part of the imago Dei, the image of God in us? Man is made in the image of God, and part of that image is the fact that God is a God of anger, and therefore we are too. God grows angry, and the reason God grows angry is because he is just, and when he sees something that is unjust, it makes him angry. 
The reason why God grows angry is because God is love. And whenever there is true love, the opposite of that love will be hate. So God hates anything that takes or tarnishes what God loves. God is a God of anger. In fact, I would say that he's probably, in the eyes of many people in this world, the most angry person they've ever heard of. David Paulison now passed away, but a wonderful Christian counselor and author, he writes in his book, Good and Angry, he writes, God is the most angry person in history. He's not only angry, He's much more, but he is angry because of sin. The world is filled with sin. But you'll notice something about the anger of God. The anger of God is not tainted by sin. The anger of God is not tainted in any way by the fall of man into sin. God's anger is good anger. It is pure, holy anger. God always, always exercises Good anger. He corrects the wrong, yes. How? With patience, with kindness, with mercy, even as he brings about justice. In his anger, God does not sin. His anger is constructive. He identifies what is wrong, and then he moves to make a positive change using utilizing mercy, patience, Forgiveness and love. Good anger. He's a good, good father. Uh, David Paulison, again, in his book, Good and Angry, he gives us six wavelengths of anger. I thought they were interesting, interesting enough that I would share them with you. Different levels of anger. He calls them wavelengths. The first one is irritability. That's a lot of us men, isn't it? You watch the news, you see an angry person. I'm irritated by what I watch. And then there's the anger in which you argue. And then there's yet the next level, anger in which produces bitterness. And I'll add cynicism to that as well. The cynical person is an angry person. And then there is violence. There's laws against that. Violence. But have you considered that passive anger is also just that, anger? Passive anger is when you disconnect between what you say and what you do. Passive anger. And then consider this as anger. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. I'm so angry about you, about what you do, how far you've succeeded or how you live that I say I'm better than you, I am righteous, you are not. I'm angry at you, I'm better. That's a form of anger, self-righteousness. And so Paulson writes, anger does not happen to you, you do anger. We choose to be angry. Now there are things that would cause us to be angry, but you see, anger is a matter of our control. We do anger. And we have to decide whether or not we're going to exercise good anger or bad anger. It's up to us. I think most men get it wrong. 
I'm not making an excuse for men. I'm saying, men, we have to wise up. And that's why Paul puts this here. Do not taint your hands with anger and quarreling. How can you worship God properly if your hands are filled with sin? Adam and Eve were angry. Eve certainly was angry. But they were angry for the wrong reason. They were angry at God. You see, when, when, when the serpent told Eve, said, you know, if you eat from this fruit, you're going to be just like God. And he knows it. That's why he told you not to touch it. And she's like, oh, really? He knew that. Huh. How dare him? He knew very well, and that's why he told me not to eat from this tree. And now she's getting angry. And in her anger, what does she do? She sins. She should have been angry, but not at God. She should have been angry at Lucifer, who tried to convince her to disobey God. Oh, she should have been angry. At Lucifer, at the serpent. Not at God. Well, how do you know whether or not you're exercising good anger or bad anger? Here are a couple of evaluation tips. You know you are bad and angry if, one, you are angry only when you are wronged. You know it's bad anger when you're angry only when you are wrong. When others are wrong, you're like, hey, life is life. Too bad for you. You had it coming. You know you are bad and angry when you're only angry when you are wrong. Here's another one. I'll give you four. Number two, you know you are bad and angry if your relationship is marked by arguing, whatever that relationship may be. If it's marked by arguing, you're bad and angry. Number three, you know you're bad and angry if you are bitter and resentful. Bad anger. Here's one more. You know you are bad and angry if what angers God does not anger you. What angers God does not anger you. That's bad anger. By the way, when we're angry at what angers God, we call that righteous indignation or righteous anger. Righteous anger means that those things anger God and therefore they anger me. Rightly so. It's good anger. However, righteous anger is not just that. Righteous anger is not just being angry at whatever angers God. Righteous anger also means I'm going to respond in the same way that God responds. You see the difference? It's more than just saying, well, God's angry, I'm angry. No, it's saying I will respond in a way that God would respond to whatever wrong has occurred. You make a moral evaluation, yes, and then you very deliberately respond in a constructive way. That is to say, in righteous indignation, righteous anger, you respond with love, kindness, patience, and forgiveness. Is that hard? Oh, you betcha. But by the grace of God, it's possible. By the power of the Holy Spirit in you, it can be done, it must be done. Others have, you can, we can. Righteous indignation. Good and angry, that's where we need to go. Uh, if you are good and angry, you are actually going to try to uh, seek out 
the redemption of that other person you're angry at. You're going to look to see how that person can benefit and not be destroyed. Um, again, Paulson calls this redemptive-focused anger. I call it a severe mercy. Severe because anger is severe. Mercy because my good anger needs to be merciful. I'm not saying anybody deserves it. I'm saying that if you want to build your life in Christ, if you want to build his church, you must come to a place where you're angry at the things that anger God, but you respond in a way that God would respond. You have good anger, constructive anger, redemptive anger, a severe mercy. That's how important it is. And God here is saying, listen, you're going to find it very difficult to worship properly if your hands are tainted with bad anger that produces quarreling. Well, that's men. Now for women. What should the attitude of women be? Uh, maybe you notice that Paul's writings here are, um, are longer for women than they are for men. Paul was not in any way favoring man over women. Um, I can't say this, that the jeopardy of being misunderstood, please don't throw anything at me. I do think that one of the reasons why the apostle writes more about women than men is because women are much more complex than men. <laughs> you think? <laughs> I think there's truth there. But I can also say this. Imagine the dullness of life if women were like men. Oh, please. Certainly we, get, we, we would get the shopping done quicker. No question about it. But how dull life would be if women were as simple as men. It would not be exciting at all. Here... Paul tells men that they should be committed and clean. And guess what? He tells women the same thing, but in a different way. So what should the attitude of women be? Well, look at verses 9 and 10. And you'll notice there he begins verse 9 with likewise. In other words, just as men are to exercise propriety when they're worshiping and praying, so women should also exercise propriety. And the common problem, problem among men was anger and quarreling. Well, take a look here at the common problem among women. Their common problem was that they often focused on appearance. Now, I have to be careful what I say here. I realize it. But let me say this nonetheless. Hope Church may very well be the exception to verse 9. I'm not saying, ladies that you do not care about your appearance. I'm not saying that you are dowdy, drab, and frumpy. I'm not saying that at all. Quite the opposite. What I am saying, and this is intended to be a compliment, there has been historically, during my tenure here, very little emphasis on appearance among you. And that's a good thing. Now, again, sometimes it's easier to understand what the scripture is saying by first understanding what it's not saying. And the text here is not telling women that they should not seek to look their best. That's not what the passage is saying. They are not, uh, they, they are not here being told that drab is good because drab 
frumpy is godly. It's not. What the text here is saying, ladies, is that you too are to be pure and consecrated. Pure and consecrated is of primary importance when it comes to worshiping Jesus Christ, just as it is with a man. Purity and consecration is displayed outwardly for a woman as well. In this case, the Apostle Paul speaks about how she is to dress, and she is to dress with decency. The external ought to reflect the internal. In fact, look, the external does reflect the internal. So look at your style of dress, look at whether or not you're modest, and that'll be a reflection that'll help you understand what's in your heart. Because what is in your heart, as we read earlier from Matthew 5, does spill out. Men who argue and quarrel do not have holy hands to raise. And women who are immodest don't either. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. And so the verse reads this way. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So her attitude should be this, twofold. One is respectable, and the other one is self-controlled. By respectable, we're talking about uh, she should have a, 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 a modest dress, a decent dress. In other words, ladies, don't overstep the limits. Don't overstep the limits of modesty. And the culture doesn't determine what is modest. The scriptures do. Exercise a sense of propriety. And then says we are, you are to be self-controlled as well. Which literally there, it conveys the, the, the sense of use good sense. Have a sound mind in a matter. In other words, be sane about your dress. I think we've all seen clips of um, the red carpet episode during the Oscars. And, and you see what the, 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 these uh, actresses are wearing. They're like, I'm sorry, they're called actors now. What, what they're wearing. And you're like, whoa, are you really going out like that? It's incredible what they were. But it's not just them. It's also, have you seen pictures of high school proms and it's just really your mom's going to let you go out your father's going to let you go out to a prom like that but here the conversation is not about the Oscars it's not about the prom it's about church but hardly do we limit this modesty just to church it should be the scope of life uh, we can agree that this world no longer has a sense of modesty. Far from it. In fact, uh, a modesty today is oddity. If you're modest, you're odd. <laughs> That's the way it goes. And how unfortunate that is. The Bible speaks otherwise. The Bible here is t telling ladies, look, do not be ensnared by fashion. Fashion is nice, depending what the fashion is. Don't be ensnared by it. In, in other words... Don't allow fashion to be where you find your identity. Don't allow fashion to de determine who you are. But there's more. Paul is also saying, ladies, do not lure others' attentions through your looks. 
Paul's instruction here is the complete opposite of everyday common notion. Because today we are told, dress so that you will attract. Dress so that you will lure. Dress so that people will look and maybe envy you or want to touch you. That is a story here today, but you know something? It was a story back then as well. There's nothing new under the sun. And what Paul writes here correlates with what Peter said in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 3. He says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Notice here, my friends, verse 9, it speaks about adorning back in 1 Timothy 2. And the text is saying, ladies, do put things in order. The word adorn means just that. It comes from the Greek word cosmos, from where we get our English cosmos, the orderly arrangement of the universe. But it's also the same word from which we get our word cosmetics. Cosmetics puts your face in an orderly arrangement. And here Paul says, adorn yourself, but do it with modesty. Do it with decency. And he says, not with braided hair, gold and pearls, not with costly attire. Well, again, let's take a look at what he's not saying. Paul is not saying here that braided hair is wrong. Neither is he saying that jewelry, whether gold or pearls, is wrong. And neither is the Apostle Paul saying, shop at Walmart. Don't buy anything expensive. Uh, last year, my wife and I were watching my son play at a soccer game. It was a national, a state championship, rather. So they, they did pretty well. And, and it was great to watch my, our, our son play. But in front of us, there was a, a row of high school girls, very excited high school girls, standing there, so excited they didn't want to sit down. And they all wore their homemade skirts that went down to their ankles, smart sneakers, and braided hair tied up in a bun. And all the colors were a dull or muted blue or green pattern. Truth is, we couldn't tell one apart from the other from behind. And it's all because they misinterpret this text here, 1 Timothy 2. Verses 9 and 10 in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. The scriptures are not saying that you have to be dull or frumpy, but rather it's obvious that Paul here is speaking of a particular way of dressing, a particular way of braiding your hair, a particular way of wearing jewelry and what kinds of jewelry and uh, uh, how much you're paying for your jewelry and what you're saying about yourself when you deck yourself out. Paul here is saying that you should not be indecent, but rather exercise a sound mind. Be self-controlled. Do not be immodest. In fact, I find this very interesting, is that outside of the scripture, secular writers would write about this sort of dress as well. 
about the braiding the hair and the costly attire and the jewelry, almost identical to the scriptures. And this was their conclusion. The secular writers were saying this, that dressing this way was a form of infidelity to their husbands because it was sexually alluring. Isn't that interesting? And Paul is saying, don't do that, especially don't do that in church. You ought to be aware, ladies, of your surroundings. There may very well be those who cannot afford what you have, and so they come to church to worship, but instead they are watching you, and they can very easily grow jealous because you're just decking it out, showing all that you have, and they have so little. That would not be to anybody's advantage in God's house. And you also must consider that there are men who might be lured sensually as well, which is often the case now, isn't it? Today's modern apparel is by and large designed to be sensually attractive. Apparel that says, look, but don't touch. And rightly so, don't touch. But here Paul is saying, don't dress so that they'll look. But be modest. Be decent. In fact, the word there, translated for us, self-control, is a Greek word that actually carries out sexual connotations. And Paul is saying, do not go in that direction. Not only that, but you, you, you ought to be aware of why you're seeking to be so attractive. What is it that motivates you to be wanting to be so attractive? Are you finding your identity in what people think of you, in your appearance? Listen, my friends, there's a time and place for almost every form of apparel. But the worship of God, church, is not a time and place to dress to the nines. Hardly. Rather, God's house is a place where he would be given attention. It's not a place where we come for us to find attention. It's not a place for us to feed our egos. In fact, if you look at verse 10, our last verse, you, you see that this whole idea of trying to get people to focus on me is contrary to a godly spirit. And so Paul writes, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Adorn yourself instead with what? Good works. In fact, literally it reads this way. Adorn yourself through good works. In other words, your actions are the expression of your faith. How you act, how you dress, reveals what's in your heart. No surprise there, but the scriptures do speak to it. Now, let me say this. Paul here is speaking to women. Absolutely, it's very clear. But the principle is very much so, equally so, applicable to men today. Because in our culture, in our masculine culture today, men have the same sort of emphasis on appearance and attraction and discovering our identity and how we look or being luring, even sexually luring by our looks. 
And the same things that were true of women then are true of men today. And so, my friends, men, this is true of us as well. Beware, beware. So let's wrap it up. Let me say this. Let me, let me summarize everything for you this morning. I know I said quite a bit. Christians are to approach God with holy hands. That is, devoted, devout. By devout, I mean a spiritual commitment to God. Consecrated to God. That's how we should approach God when we worship Him. You want to build this church? You need to be devoted to Him. I hope you're in. Our attitude reveals to us whether or not we are raising up holy hands to God. Are we exercising decency? Anger and quarreling tells me that my hands are tainted with sin. Emphasis on external appearances tells me that my hands are stained with sin. I can say this in my last words here. Seeing God's greatness, coming together to worship God, and coming to the realization of how big God is, how superior, how holy, like no other God is, really does drive me to want to pray, worship, sing. I look forward to preaching here because it's my way of, of telling you how big our God is. I don't know how you sit there every week. Because I just love being able to tell you, and I assume you would like to tell me too. God is great. God is big. But when I approach God with soiled, sin-filled hands, I can worship and worship and worship. But my worship is tainted. It is improper. God does not hear my prayers. My hands need to be clean before God. So what do you do? Stay home? No, 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 no. You come to the Lord's house and you prepare yourself. Lord, so cleanse me. Lord, prepare me. Lord, call me to repentance. Show me how and where I need to repent. And prepare me to worship you properly. And build this church build this church. Now let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, how good it is to know that we serve a living God who desires that we would worship you properly. Help us then, Lord, to worship you properly. We pray this in your name, O Christ. Amen.